Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Beth Lapidus is an actress, writer, and comedic performer who has appeared on Will and Grace, Sex in the City, and Politically Incorrect. But she is best known for creating the alternative comedy show Uncabaret, which has been running off and on and mostly on since the late 1980s in Los Angeles. Lapidus turned Uncab into a Comedy Central special in 1997, and then four more specials in 2012 for Amazon Prime Video. In between, she also shot a talk show pilot for MTV. In 2022, Lapidus has delivered her first exclusive audiobook about the power of life-changing decisions called So You Need to Decide. In the book, she talks about her own decision to create on Cabaret and also interviews the likes of Margaret Cho, Isaac Mizrahi, Bob Odenkirk, and Phoebe Bridges. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it. Beth Levitas, <laughs> congratulations on your new audiobook. Last things first, though, uh, is there any truth to the rumor that I am just now starting that <laughs> <laughs> that the that the people who wrote Sex in the City slash and just like that that they started calling these stand-up shows comedy concerts because of Uncabaret? Oh my God, start that rumor. I love that rumor. That's hilarious. Maybe. I mean, we, they, they were all Michael Patrick King was an uncabber. I mean, he is an uncabber. He did a zoom a couple of months ago and, um, they would all hang out at uncab and a lot of them, you know, uncabber used to produce a night that was called, uh, say the word and it was TV writers writing just the story of their own, you know, stories from their own lives. And all the Sex and the City writers did it. So maybe, could be. I haven't watched, I haven't watched the reboot. Uh, but, but I do know that one of the things that all of my comedian friends have talked about is yeah. the fact that apparently they're, they keep talking about going to comedy concerts. No, it's just one. It's one comedy concert, but it is uh, Judy Gold did a thing on it on Uncap Zoom the other night. You know, you never would say go to a comedy concert. But, you know, everything in those shows is so um, part of it is that it's out of proportion. That's what's fun about it. It's mm-hmm. not really realism is not its goal. But enough Why about a comedy uh, concert. Why not? Let's start <laughs> saying that. Maybe it would elevate. I mean, I love your thing that, you know, you were sort of on the forefront of trying to treat comedy like an art form. And in some ways, um, why not call comedy concerts concerts? Why don't we? We don't, but maybe we should. Certainly some comedians, once they get to arenas, act like rock stars. Yeah, it is a concert. I mean, I love the word concert. I mean, it's sort of, you know, con is with and cert. I don't know where it comes from in that word, but like hmm. certainly <laughs> to be certainly with somebody or certification. Certified. Yeah, certified, yeah, certifiable. Like, yeah. So to be sort of with people in that way. I mean, I love the word concert. I love the, I love going to concerts and, 
I mean, the word show, I like the word show, but maybe not as much as the, I mean, show is almost more limited than concert. Let's do it. Well, in that sense, what is un about uncabaret? That's an interesting question. Well, um, as long as we're talking linguistics. Yeah, as long as we're going there. Um, well, here is the thing that came to me. It's one of those things that I think it's okay. What is on about it? What, the first thing that was on about it was um, the way the name came to me was very in the moment, very unmediated. It was, I, I was doing a show out of offbeat downtown Los Angeles venue called the women's building. And it was a show where the audience was, I don't want to say too responsive, but they were like definitely peaking the meter of how responsive they could be to the material where it was. <laughs> and, um, you know, you appreciate that as an audience and then it makes you better because they're so responsive and it's a back and forth conversation. But at the end of the show afterwards, you know, and sort of the meet and greet part, I was like, you know, it wasn't quite as funny as you thought it was. I mean, when was the last time you laughed? And they said, oh, we don't laugh. We're women and we're artists and we're lesbians. And if we go to comedy clubs, they just make fun of us. And just in the moment, I said, oh, I'm going to, you know, get back from tour. I'm going to make you a show. It's going to be unhomophobic, unxenophobic, unmisogynist. It'll be uncabaret. And oh. I don't know where uncabaret came from. I wasn't a cabaret girl. I was a downtown girl. I was art spaces and theaters. And I don't know if I'd even ever been to a cabaret. Um, <laughs> had you even seen I the movie seen or a Broadway show? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'd seen the movie. <laughs> I like to say I'd seen the movie with my boyfriend and his boyfriend. Mm. It was an immersive experience. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, so... It, the un, you know, referred to in some ways it's it's mis it's a miscue, and I've always wondered if like I should have changed the name. But you get an sometimes I think you get an assignment, sort of from the universe, and I feel like that's what it was. It was a total download. The thing about the un of it is it sort of almost makes it feel unfriendly, and it's definitely not unfriendly. It's unhacky. But um, it's not like an FU show, and the Un maybe gives it a feeling of that. But because the show is called Un, I've also become very, oh, of course, I'm aware as I go through life, anytime I see Un words, you know, unpacking, unmitigated. Um, there's a lot of unness that, so the Un of Uncabaret is also the unhacky, but. The un is also a kind of unstatus quo. The status quo wasn't okay. I was dissatisfied with that in the world. Um, anyway, I could talk forever about un, but that's probably enough. Well, one of one of the things that I enjoy about your audiobook, so you need to decide, is that in doing the book, you you realize that yes, there's the decision to launch on cabaret. But there was actually a, a lifetime of smaller decisions that led up to that. And then also when you're interviewing comedians and performers, so many of them talk about not the decision to start something, but the decision that they made before that to quit 
the thing they already had, whether it was Bob Odenkirk leaving Saturday Night Live or Dana Gould oh, leaving sorry, The Simpsons. And, th- and those are both those are both prime examples of people who have like prestigious entertainment comedy jobs yeah. that you could have for the rest of your life. Yeah. And, and it gives you security, gives you credibility. And the idea that you would leave that and then start something else is terrifying. And it reminded me also that, you know, I'm almost 400 episodes into my podcast and, oh, so and, and my podcast has evolved, but in the early days, I would, one of the standard questions I would ask, I would ask a lot of questions that were pinned to the words last or first. And one of the mm-hmm. questions I, I always asked in the beginning was what was your last day job? Mm. And your book and that section of the book reminded me that that decision is, is really the, the paramount thing for any comedian or creative person because they have this stability of the day job. And then they have to, they've reached this point where it's like, can I leave this behind to pursue my dreams? Yeah. Yes. And that, yeah. I mean, it's the eternal question we all struggle with, whether we're in show business or any business is the balance of uh, trappedness versus anxiety. You know, how much uh, <laughs> I, I used to say like a little ditty to myself, like trapped or anxious, trapped or anxious, everybody, you know, and it's just like, you know, too much security, you're trapped too little security. You're anxious. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to work on anxiety and there's, you know, so boundaries create freedom. That's a truth. And, um, that's why people get married, (laughs) but one of the reasons, and you know, that's an idea in a yoga practice. There's a lot of different ways you experience boundaries, giving you freedom. Too many boundaries, though, no freedom. Too little boundaries, also no freedom because of the anxiety. How does this apply to you, especially with Uncabaret? Because you had to make you had to make yeah. the decision three different, at least three different times, right? There was the initial decision in the late '80s where you're like, "Well, I can perform at the Comedy Store. I can go on the road. I can do shows. I can be a working comedian." But that's right. not what I'm supposed to do. And then years down the road, you made a decision to stop doing on cabaret. And then a few years after that, you made the decision to start it back up. So be back in Sean. It's a very roller coaster ride. So take me, take me through it from the long climb before that first. Before the first decision. Yeah. Uh what okay. what was that what was that like for you and and, and at what point okay. did you realize that wasn't cutting it just being a working comedian it wasn't cutting it ever i mean i kept thinking it might start to cut it but mm-hmm. um i never had the kind of i never was able to have a very satisfying life as a you know in the comedy club circuit uh, I kept leaving and going back to doing one person shows, which I would also do in theaters and art spaces. I never was fully, I never felt, I, in some ways I, I felt like the more I worked in clubs, the worse my work was getting. I don't know if that was true, but I felt like it. Um, you know, I just never felt like I could, I wasn't necessarily connecting with the audiences that were there. 
it wasn't awful. I mean, I definitely was getting spots. I was getting gigs. I was meeting people I loved. Um, I was really in love with comedy. Uh, I really fell in lo- Once I realized, like, you could be on stage and be doing your work or be doing your work and trying to make it funny also, it was like, why would you do anything else? You know, why wouldn't you? If you're gifted with some amount of it, you, it almost seemed like, um, so, you know, I didn't necessarily, I never thought about quitting comedy. I just kept thinking, how can I make it work better? And part of that was trying to meet the clubs where I was. Part of it was, you know, every now and then be a great gig. I mean, there were enough great gigs that you kept going. There was enough you know, discovery. I was so in love with the writing and performing, you know, I kept putting up with less than great situations. Um, How much of that was, was solely the difference between the, the New York comedy scene versus Los Angeles in the 1980s? I don't know. That's a really good question. Some, I mean, I don't think I understood how much everything in Los Angeles was a showcase, but Mm -hmm. at the time, New York was a little more, process and doing the work for itself and people were doing you know three sets a night five nights seven nights a week you know if you hadn't been on stage for two days how could you you know it all had gone away people would freak out and you know uh and in LA there was a lot about you know pilot season and uh who's in you know showcases and everybody you know trying to get your sitcom deal and your holding deal and your tight ten so you get your late night set and I just it wasn't it was not good for me. I've never been great at the tight ten. <laughs> just it's not it's not for me. But you um, you weren't you weren't uh you weren't high on uh who was it, Jim McCauley's radar for for Carson? For Johnny Carson? <laughs> Not that I know of. <laughs> you know, when I came to town, I had an agent tell me that I was too original. And I laughed and I just thought that was the funniest thing. And how is that even possible? That just seemed like a joke. And then I realized he wasn't joking. And and now I see what he, you know, I understand, you know, what that means. But I, I don't, I still don't think it's possible, but I do understand what it means. I do understand what the problem was. So I, I, I was frustrated, but still hooked. You know, I was frustrated with the situation as it was, but so engaged by comedy and so wanting it to work. I just thought, I'll find, you know, there's got to be a better way. That was the sentence that was sort of going through my head. So when I did this spot that I talk about in the book um, at the comedy store was in the belly room and it, I, Andrew Dice Clay was going on before me and just everything in me was so allergic to him. And, you know, he was, the audience was buying it so hard. So then I'm hating him for doing the misogynist work. I'm hating them for laughing at it, hating myself for being so reactive and hating, but didn't have the like spiritual tools to get out of the reactiveness and I'm not good with hate. I mean, you know, at another time, I mean, now either I would, you know, plug into the hate and try to channel it and go with it or work, 
you know, to transcend, but I just got sort of frozen. I was, you know, I was younger. So, and, but I really knew at that point, I mean, that night I really is the night for me that I just, the sentence in my head was like, there's got to be a better way. And, um, and I didn't necessarily know at the time that would be to create a different kind of space, but I was, it, it opened me to the answer. Were there any, any theaters or any productions out there that, that, that gave you hope or that inspired you to go, well, this could work? Well, it wasn't necessarily a theater, but I would see people's work that I loved. I mean, I loved a lot of the comedy that was happening, but it mm-hmm. didn't have a place to coalesce. Um, I guess I'm trying to think of what L.A. was like in the 80s. And, you know, I know New York Magazine did this big thing about this bookshop, Big and Tall, but that started yeah, after. Big and Tall thing. But um, didn't they start after you? You know, I wasn't aware of it before me, so I don't know whether, I can't say for sure, but I think so, because the women's building was actually in the 80s, mm-hmm. um, the late 80s, and then we did that for a while, and, and we did a couple of shows, they lost their funding, then I uh, then I moved the show to Highways, and we did it there for a bunch, and then... Where was Highways? Highways is out in Santa Monica, and um, it was Highways Performance Space. It was started by a friend of mine who in New York had created PS122. I don't know if you're familiar with that space. And I had done a lot of work there. And I had done a lot of shows at Highways. It was a performance art space that was open to all sorts of things. And I had been doing my comedic one-person shows there and had an audience there and... So I brought Taylor Negron and Judy Toll, and we did a couple of months of late night shows there that were very, I think of the women's building as kind of the insemination. It really began there. But then I think of highways as the gestation. A lot of what Uncab would be was formed in those shows. Um, the confessional nature of it, Judy Toll was sublime at that. She was very connected and personal. Taylor's sort of poeticness and his groundedness in LA culture. He also had a little bit of the like, you know, you know, he was a little, I don't want to say hacky, but he did have a part of him that was like, had to tell a joke and still be sort of funny about telling jokes. Well, he was in the movie punchline. He was, yes, he was. And, um, but he was a great storyteller. I mean, really, really great storyteller. And uh, then sort of my bigger ideas and we, that just, it just really happened there. Then I took a break to run my first lady campaign. And when that was over, I was really looking for somewhere. And that was when Jean-Pierre Beccaro, who was a impresario of nightclubs in Los Angeles and a really important, really cultural creator he was a really a person who saw performers and put them in his spaces. And it wasn't just sort of, it wasn't finances. He was a more of a New Yorker. I mean, he's French and it had more of an S he, he, you couldn't just call and say, well, I'll pay. So I'll be in your space. He really curated that space and it had a feeling. And so he was, this is his third club that he was opening. And, um, he asked me if I wanted to do something. And I said, oh, yeah, I want to have him working on the show on Cabaret. It's comedy, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, I don't know, will it be funny? 
And I was like, no, Jean-Pierre, it's not going to be funny. And he booked it. So we booked it for three Sunday nights. And uh, then I say we were the Gilligan's Island of comedy shows because we booked it for three nights and we stayed for seven years till the night the club closed. So you've you've already used the words insemination and gestation. <laughs> and and for years the word God I would say was the full birth. Okay. And 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 the word godmother has long been attached to either yourself, to the show, or to both. Yes. When did when did any sort of maternal instinct actually kick in for you? In in terms of comedy. Yeah, yeah, Not yeah. Not in terms of actually having kids, but in terms of like, oh, I'm giving birth to something here. I feel like at the beginning, I was more like one of those girls in like Babies Having Babies, Teenage Moms on MTV. You know, there's that like MTV mm-hmm. shows like Babies Having Babies, you know, the Teenage Mom shows. Because I don't think that I was, um, I was so young. I mean, I had no, and a lot, I was young and I was naive too. I was very naive. And I was really, in some ways, unprepared. So I do think, though, I was operating in a maternal way. It wasn't. Um, it was not a mature maternal way. <laughs> it was a teen mom way. <laughs> right. So way. <laughs> so when right. So when you when you made those uh, initial uh, bookings with Jean Pierre, uh, three weeks that turned into seven years. Yeah. Yeah, you weren't thinking, oh, this is going to be my baby that I need to no. nurture, that I need to uh, keep an eye on, that I need to grow and develop. It's like, oh, I'm just doing this show for a month. I was just horny. I was just like, I want to have sex. You know, it was just <laughs> like, I just want to do these shows. I just want to do shows. You know, I right, and do doing shows fun. is slightly orgasmic, right? The, yeah. the laughter uh, from the crowd. Yeah. Yeah, I was just driven by the experience. I didn't have a, like... I wasn't calculating. Like I wasn't like thinking like, how can I innovate and then be known as an innovator? And how can I, I just was hungry to make a space that would be a good space for people. At what point did you start to realize that Uncabaret was having an impact on the comedy scene? You know, in those early Luna Park days, it became pretty clear pretty fast. You know, we accumulated. And once we were there and um, it seemed like we were going to be able to stay, you know, maybe after a month or something. It was like, oh, all right. You know, and it wasn't, it didn't happen like super fast because even so, you have to remember now comedy is what it is. And, you know, partly because of you, you know, and and people who have taken it seriously, but at that point, you know, there was a lot of clubs where it was just tourists coming. And um, so I would tell, ask my friends, you know, come to the show. I'd invite them. And they go, oh, I don't know, stand-up enough. I don't want to come see a stand-up show. I was like, Not that kind of stand-up. So even within, you know, friends who were screenwriters and in the film and TV business, you know, people were very resistant to coming to see a stand-up show because of what it was. But slowly but surely people would come and they'd go, oh, and then they'd bring their friends back. The audience was really part of it. And then what would ha- what was happening is, you know, people on the show were bringing in people of the show, you know, of their, their people. So Janine, I think, brought Bob and Judy brought uh, Julia and Kathy. And, you know, we were all bringing in the people that we knew and liked to create this group. And, um, 
once the group started to form and I'd say like the first season, like I think of life in, you know, we really, we think of days and months, but I also always think of that three month chunk. And I think probably after the first season, it started to be clear. This is something, wait, something is really, there was an energy. It was definitely an energy and it was definitely like, this is a, this is a thing that's really happening. I don't know if I could say in comedy, but I knew in the room, this was mm-hmm. a big thing that was really happening. So then it was, then that would make it season four <laughs> that Comedy Central became interested. Something in like that. Yes. We had, um, yeah, so we were optioned pretty early on. I mean, there was a huge article in the LA Times. You can't skip over that. And now there's so many different, you know, print isn't what it was because there's this and there's so many things. But at that time, it was very limited, you know, the ways you could connect to an audience. And print was, you know, a major thing. And the LA Times, God God bless Oscar Garza, sent uh, assigned a reporter and this guy, Chuck Crisofulli, started coming and he had wanted to be a comedy writer. And I think like you wanted to really be serious about it. And it was having a hard time finding a way. And then he found us and he didn't just come once. He came show after show after show. So when he wrote about it, he really knew what he was writing about. And I think probably articulated a lot of things that maybe I couldn't even have articulated at the time. And then there was an article on a Friday in the calendar section of Los Angeles Times above the fold. It was the whole above the fold. It was mm-hmm. like a giant, like, you, you know, a new breed of comedians. And um, and it did talk about, you know, it did talk about some of the other shows. But, of, co- of course, Uncap was highly featured and, you know, primary and it was huge. And I mean, it went from like, are we going to be able to stay open to, oh, my God, it's exploding. People are fighting to get in. We're adding second shows. And, you know, it's a madhouse. Executives were flying in from New York and Jean-Pierre was saying there's no room in the room and that, you know, fist, it was just like, you know, what happens? It was like from like, can we fill the room to, oh my God, you know, it's trapped or anxious. I mean, it was right there. It was right there. And, um, from there we were optioned and then Comedy Central wanted to do it, but, um, they didn't want me to host. So we didn't have to do it. And is that what also led to the pilot for MTV? The couch? I think that the pilot for MTV, actually, we did end up doing a, a couple of years later, we did do a show for Comedy Central. Mm-hmm. And after that, uh, that's what led to doing the pilot for the couch. Yeah. When, but when those things didn't uh, mature, <laughs> That's a very nice way of saying it. I love. Well, I, I was trying to think of like how do we keep the yeah. the sexual or the the human <laughs> metaphor going. Uh, if corporations are people, then uncabaret is also. Yes, your your career is also a person. I like it. So when 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 those when the Comedy Central and the MTV thing didn't didn't mature or fly yeah. away, fruition. Yes. Um, how did you deal with that in the short term? Badly. I was just devastated. I, I mean, 
Well, the special when we did the when we did do the special uh, was very exciting. I was super thrilled to do it, and I'm happy with how it came out, and we got great numbers. But um, I didn't quite know how to read the room, and uh, at one point it was a you know it was in the can, it was scheduled. And we were starting to get a lot of press and my partner was very good at doing press and Comedy Central asked us to not get press. Don't do press. And that seemed very, I mean, it seemed now I would be like, no, but Mm -hmm. I wanted to play nice. You don't know, you know, and what I didn't, they were basically, it was, we were launching like the next day or the day before South Park and obviously, mm. I mean, they obviously knew what they had in South Park and they were just like, we're going all in on South Park. That's what's happening. And um, I get it. I mean, sure. Who wouldn't, you know, good decision probably. Mm-hmm. But I at the time didn't get it. And then even though we got good numbers, it was, ended up not being, a, as they say, a backdoor pilot. Um, it ended up being only an actual special. And then, but then from there, uh, we did the couch and that was that. So it was a little disappointing, but we at least got on the air and it was what it was. And, um, and I think there was a feeling that I couldn't really do anything else until that happened. So whether or not it became a series, at least we had done that and I was happy with it and I learned a lot. Um, but then when we did the, the pilot for, the couch and it was getting great buzz everywhere. It's going, people were telling me how much they, Oh, I've heard such great things about it. And I love doing it so much. And we had to do, you know, it was happening. It was in variety that it was happening. Greenlit and, um, came home one day and there was a call, you know, and then my agent called and said it wasn't happening. And that was devastating in subsequent years. I have learned, you know, anyway, they, they went with a Tom Green talk show instead. Right. Tom Green, who, I mean, was being classified as alternative, but not <laughs> the same kind of alternative of Beth Lapidus. Certainly in, the mother of alternative. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, yeah. I mean, it was hard. I, I, that was a really hard one to get over. And then we uh, shopped it and, and Bravo was going to do it and they didn't do it. It was very disappointing. And I think of that show now. I mean, it was very ahead of its time as on Cabaret was. And, um, and you know, I was trying to do a talk show where people were not just on the air promoting stuff. And we have that now because podcasts, I mean, look, we're talking about the book, but we're talking about so much else. And um and the idea of the show, I loved the, I loved this show so much. I would do it now if somebody wanted to do it with me. The, you know, the idea was that I had been on Politically Incorrect a bunch and I just loved the green room. I loved the, uh, and the thing I loved about the green room is that people were meeting for the first time. And as a host, which, you know, I had spent a lot of my time at that point being, and kind of becoming, I know how much happens when people first meet. So we thought, oh, well, we're going to book people very specifically, and then we're going to keep them separate. So the reason they've come together, they don't even know, and it's happening on camera. So um, the some examples in the pilot, we had um, 
Mike Mills, who's one of the guys from REM, and Scott Thompson from Kids in the Hall mm. together talking about being one member of a creative group and what that's like and what that experience is. That was a great conversation. It came to talk about money and money keeping people together and money separating people. It's really good. And then we had, uh, there was a guy who was the head of the Sierra Club at that point. He was a very young guy, really interesting, and Andy Dick and the Sierra Club guy had written a book called Act Now, Apologize Later. And of course, Andy Dick had a lot to apologize for. And <laughs> so we had them yes. together talking about apologies. Anyway, it was like that. We had a John C. Riley with a voodoo priestess because his dad had just died. And that was a very interesting conversation. It was really an exciting show. And, um, and then we shot long and edited, which you don't see in talk shows, but really makes it beautiful. And anyway, I, I was happy with how it came out, but didn't go. So I was devastated. Um, but like, you know, in some ways in retrospect, you can't have, I mean, what you learn later on. And I think Bob talks about this in the book. You know, everyone has devastation. It's not until you get a little into it that you realize, like, all the people that you think are so successful have had their own devastations. And um, it's hard to know that at the beginning. I mean, maybe it's not now. There's a lot of information or maybe I was just naive. I didn't know that, that that's mm -hmm. not – you can't take that personally. It's not about you. Everyone's going to have this. And just keep doing the work and do the best work you can and, you know, and, and don't look back, but, um, it still hurts, but it hurts in a different way. If you know, to not take it personally, to feel the feelings and move past them and, you know, all of that stuff. But I didn't, um, I didn't have those tools then, Sean. But you did have on cabaret. But I did have on cabaret to come back to. Yes, I did. I so, did. so tell me then, because there was a brief period of like four years, maybe 2008 to 2012, where on cabaret wasn't happening. Mm. It, so, are those years that seem like about right? Um, so, when you decided to start up again, well, why did I close? How did I start up? What happened? What the fuck happened? Is that what you're asking me? Well, what, what, even when I just bring it up, like what, what comes to the front of your head? Like, what is the, what is the searing, lasting feeling or memory or? Um, what's well, the singular time in my life mm -hmm. and um, probably, I don't know if there's something, some a lasting image, but I would say that the closing happened very quietly and we had made a big point at other times. This is the end. No more shows. You know, Luna Park's closing. Oh, oh wait, we're at HBO. HBO's over. No more show. You know, it's so, but in this case, um, I had been evicted from a, what I thought would be my last apartment until I could buy a house. Uh, and through no fault of my own, I always say, no, you know, it wasn't unpaid rent. There was no meth lab. Uh, there was new landlords moving in, moving their whole family in and blah, blah, blah. But, um, I did should have, I should have, I should have seen it coming. There was for sale sign. The landlords told us that, you know, they weren't going to evict us, which always, in Hollywood, I did at least know at that point, opposite speak, generally, if people are telling you something so like that, they're mean the opposite. 
Um, and I really wanted to buy a house. I had a little bit, I had done a radio show and a little bit saved up from that. And my husband, my ex-husband, my now ex-husband's grandmother, we had a little, you know, but there, but LA real estate and we looked and we looked, it's a long, funny story, but we ended up buying a house. It's a hilarious story, Sean. It's a hilarious <laughs> story. Uh, but it was and, your personal life that was taking precedence over the yes that's a good way question. of saying it. my personal life took precedence and um and it was an adventure and you know in some ways because i was hosting on cab don't forget even not just what did it go on for a long time but it was every week it was every sunday and the whole show was about being in the now and doing new material so for years I was doing new material every single week and it doesn't give you that much time to process. And I always had a little bit of jealousy for the performers because they would, you know, and generally, you know, the regular performers would be in rotation every couple of weeks. Maybe somebody would be on two weeks in a row, but generally once a month or twice a month or once every two months, you know, so there was a lot more time to sort of, you know, collect and process and refine uh, before you were in the moment on stage. Mm-hmm. And then what would happen a lot of times is the shows would, somebody would say something and somebody would bring up something. And a lot of it happened, it, it was very in the moment. But I just didn't have that kind of processing time with before being on stage. So I think part of it was that. And I just felt like I hadn't done like, I'm going to just put it in air quotes, my work. And... um so I didn't so much as stop doing on cabaret as start doing these other things. And then cabaret kind of fell away, but it just fell away a little bit. But then when it came back, it kind of came back with a roar, right? Because you did, you produced these four specials that are on Amazon. I love how, I love your narration of this story. Yeah. <laughs> it came back with a roar. Um, <laughs> And I really, I, it came back, I was resistant. Um, I, you know, in the intervening time, I'd written a book. I had done this one person show, 100% happy, 88% of the time. And uh, the person I had done it with, Mitch Kaplan, we were, somebody brought us to a space and was like, oh, they might need you, you know, let me connect you with this space. They need you to do something. And we met the guy and it was great space. And, you know, I was coming up with other things we could do. And it was Mitch who said, uh, let's do on cabaret. And I said, no, 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 that show's dead to me. And so that show has sucked everything from me. I have nothing more to give to that show. And he's like, but everybody loves on cabaret. It'll be good. We'll just do one for your birthday. Let's just do one for your birthday. And it'll be different. I'll do it with you. We'll have music. There'll be live music. It'll be fun. Let's do it. One on cabaret. And the room was so great. And I really didn't have another idea of what I wanted to do. And so I said, yeah, all right. Let's just do one. And um, But then we did the one and it was so great to be back and it was just so exciting and it was the same, but it was different. And if we're going to stick with the birthing, it was a rebirth. And, um, and I felt like things had really changed in the world and the comedy world, a lot had happened in that time that I'd been gone and yeah, it was going to be different. And I was, and, and yeah, let's go. So it was a new, it was a, it was a rediscovery. 
And the the specials that you can still see on yeah, they're on Amazon, Amazon Prime Video. Yeah, I mean those are those are again kind of uh, pioneering because they're older content on Amazon than most of the other like original Amazon yeah programming. Yeah, we were, I'm always. I mean, it's so weird. You know, you just have a destiny. Even with these books, I mean, with audiobook, I got the. You know, I connected with this book agent. I was like, yes, books. You know, I'm going to do a book and. And then, you know, before I know it, it was like, I'm doing an original audio book. It's like, what even is that? I'm so excited. I'm going to do book, you know, go old school. It's like New York literary agent, you know, London offices, you know, go back in the way back machine to, you know, <laughs> to oldie paper time. And then I'm doing an original audio book. I don't know. It's just, and, and even the um, Amazon original stuff was uh, just sort of flukish. It was a, a friend of mine from Brown and got, got into, I said, Oh, you're doing, you're doing, you know, these on cabs back. Let's uh, you know, let's do, let's do some Amazon shows. I don't, you know, sure. We made those shows, by the way, they look pretty good. Don't they? Yeah, they do. I was if just I watching one before this. The budget was like a pack of bubble gum. I mean, we did those shows. It was a miracle. We pulled those shows off. Anyway, they, I, they were fun. I learned a lot. You know, I I produce by default. It's not my favorite thing. I'm proud that I was able to pull those off. And now you're still pulling off Uncab during the pandemic, whether it's on Zoom or you have a, a live show in person. Yes. Coming um, up, Omicron willing. Omicron willing. I mean, it's a that's a decision. I mean, you, you know, I'm sitting here today you know, just meditating on that decision. I, you know, should we do it? Should we do it? The ticket sales are very low. The audience might decide. I mean, people mm. might just decide, be, we don't want to be in a room right now. It's been great. I mean, we've been sold out and the shows have been amazing and it's so exciting to be back live. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll canvas the performers and figure out if everybody's comfortable and whatever. I'm going to give it a few days because... Everything's changing so fast. Right. Things and, change from week to week, from yeah. day to day. And hopefully we'll be back in a good place. Will it be on that day? I don't know. But the Zoom shows have been a lifesaver. They've been – we did pivot so fast. I mean, we did our first Zoom show on, I think, March 17th. Um, just super fast. I just mm-hmm. knew this is – we're going to try it. I don't know what it's going to be, but we're going to do it. And Uncab, because it's partly a talk show anyway, was very suited. I've just, you know, I'm suited we because we had this back mic and that was one of the innovations and the performers are used to being in conversation with me and I've hosted, you know, other talk things besides that MTV thing, but I'd done radio for a year and I did a podcast and, you know, all right, fine, whatever. So, <laughs> um, I don't know. I just felt like it would work and it has worked and we've been able to connect with people, you know, all over the world. And, um, it's been fun. I, you know, I, I miss the live in person shows, but I have enjoyed the zoom shows enormously. Uh, and one of the people on the next upcoming show, whether it's at El Cid or on zoom is Jamie Bridgers, who, <laughs> Who you're apparently uh, working on a TV show with? I have developing. We have a pilot. I have pilots with two different um, people. I have a pilot with Jamie, 
And uh, that pilot is about her and Phoebe Bridgers, her now uh, very famous and becoming more famous every second. Um, you've seen her on Saturday Night Live. Singer, songwriter, musician. Coachella this year. Um, she's amazing. I, you know, we had her on Uncamp before, before, before she hit big. Anyway, she and, uh, Jamie, they have a, their family story. Um, we, we have that's in progress and I have another pilot with an Instagram influencer and we'll see. What's, what's that like developing Um, a, developing a TV show with a, with an, with an influencer? It's been great. I love her. She's um, she's a special person. Her Instagram account is called Dope Ass Mom, and mm-hmm. she's, you know uh, she has a really good sense of humor about what it is that she's doing. And I was working with her and coaching her before she became an influencer, um, and it's been it's been a great process. She's she's really fun to write with and uh there's some interest in that one you know it's like this i'm gonna get this tone in my voice yeah i mean yeah there i love them both i love both these projects and there's been interest in both of them and uh you know god is willing this time next year you will you will be discussing we'll be discussing uh those shows airing and why on why on your show do you go to a comedy <laughs> concert beth <laughs> Well, that's that's for the uh, TV suits to decide. But, that is for the TV suits and suitettes to decide. <laughs> um, but thank you, Beth Lapidus, for deciding to sit down with me. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you so much, Sean. It's been so delightful talking to you. I'm glad you liked the book, and um, and it's been it's. I can't wait for people to hear it because I think I think it is super helpful. I mean, there's my story about Uncab, but I think this idea of living in a world where we all have such decision exhaustion and then to be led through, you know, areas of family work, love, spirituality, and moving by some of the funniest people that you you could ever hope to hear stories from. It was a great thrill to do this project. I can't wait for people to hear it. And thank you for having me. So if you're listening, so you need to decide to buy the audiobook. So you need to decide. Thank you so much, Beth. Thanks, Sean. Talk to you soon. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last